0: You are listening to Pop Culture Detective Audio Files. In each episode, we investigate the social and political messages embedded in popular media. I'm your host, Jonathan McIntosh, and on today's episode, we're going to be exploring a relatively new subgenre of science fiction called solarpunk. Solarpunk is an artistic, literary, and social trend where science fiction is used as a lens to imagine new narratives about a better world. These stories and visuals focus on regenerating ecosystems, permaculture farming, mutual aid networks, and generally living in harmony with our environment. In many ways, solarpunk is a reaction to the real-world climate crisis, and also a reaction to the many post-apocalyptic visions of social collapse that fill our television screens. We'll discuss the differences between solarpunk and other popular but more cynical genres, And we'll talk about why utopian fiction is so rare, while dystopian fantasies about the end of the world are almost ubiquitous in mainstream media. To that end, we're joined by two guests, Carl Williams and Andrew Sage. Carl is an assistant professor of clinical law at Cornell Law School. He teaches and supervises students working on legal projects and cases supporting struggles for racial justice, sovereignty, and liberation. Andrew is a writer, artist, organizer, and YouTuber born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago. He runs a popular YouTube channel called Andrewism, where he posts video essays that aim to invigorate the imagination and encourage people to create a better world in the shell of the old one through his explorations of solar punk, anarchism, and other radical ideas. So thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having me. How you doing, John? So I thought we'd start with just a basic overview of what solar punk is, both in terms of a genre of fiction but also as a social movement. And since Andrew has been making some fantastic in-depth video essays all about solar punk over on his YouTube channel, I thought maybe you can give us a brief introduction to the concept for those who aren't familiar.
1: Sure. I mean solarpunk like you said is it's it's a lot of different things. It's a genre, it's an aesthetic, it's a movement, all based around this idea of this shining vision of a positive future. Um emphasize the need for environmental sustainability autonomy and social justice the more that I explore punk, the more that I look in solar punk and develop solarpunk since it is still a relatively new idea the more I recognize the spectrum that it exists on from the most grounded interpretations to the most fanciful but I tend to trend to the more grounded side of things as an aesthetic it has been fairly heavily influenced by uh, movements such as art nouveau as well as uh, cultural art styles uh, across Africa, Asia, and Indigenous America. It derives its name, Punk, uh, from the cyberpunk genre, um, though you could really consider it punk in a more traditional uh, right, which I'll get into a bit later. Um, But it aims to go beyond what just is, and instead pursues what if, what could be, beyond the limitations of capitalism, beyond the current rift between humanity and nature. It focuses on what we should hope for, rather than on just what to avoid. And most importantly, I believe, Solarpunk has the potential, already partially realized, to motivate action to build the future today.
0: One of the many things that I like about Solarpunk is that, like you're saying, it it does focus heavily on what we're fighting for, and less on what we're fighting against. I mean, that's there. You know, it's part of it. It's always part of it. But I feel like for you know for a long time, and especially in popular dystopian fiction, the what we're fighting against part has been highlighted and underlined, and we get this it's sort of like this warning, right? This harsh warning of what will happen if we don't change our ways, and so we get that that vision of societies collapsing. Ecosystems collapsing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, zombie apocalypses and all kinds of stuff, <laughs> over and over and over and over again, to the point where it can feel inevitable. And Solar punk was you know, when I when I first ran across it, I was really excited because if we are going to fight against all these terrible things, which obviously we we are and we should, but what do we want instead? Yeah, I don't think that it's enough to say, oh, it's going to be you think it's going to be bad it's going to be way worse than you thought it was going to be <laughs> so come and join us in our movement to make it not that bad right yeah you know there's an urgency there and they really feel it because i mean they're not wrong but it it's depressing i mean honestly it's hard to motivate people to spend basically their entire lives it's demobilizing yeah it's demoralizing it's just it's when you're young you know you can go and you can do activism every day Uh, and you can be motivated by that anger and that, you know, that, that frustration at the world, but it's not enough. I don't think, uh, it's not sustainable.
2: Right. Right. To get back to, um, solar punk and, and, as a, as a cultural aesthetic and a thing that can, can inspire people when punk, let's say the original punk came on the scene that had such a dramatic effect on people's culture In terms of politicizing people so you know just as an example the clash made people understand so many things about politics individually in their lives and i think worldwide right things that were going on in the world and i think ideas that can be can be given to people through more digestible media instead of reading you know a 600-page treatise on uh, on some political ideology which some people do, but it's a, it's a little slower to, to do that. You're not going to get masses of people to do it. It's a lot to ask somebody to you know, to join up. Yeah. You got to read this book and this book. Yeah. But I think the idea of solar punk as a way to educate people in a soft way to say, oh yeah, that seems amazing. That that That's something that inspires me. That's something that excites me. That's something that makes me feel life is worth living and life is worth fighting for. And the planet is too. What are some pieces of solar punk that are that exist or that are that are you see coming out soon that that excite you about that andrew
1: yeah so um i can't say that there's anything upcoming that i know of that i'm thrilled for there are some existing works that are loosely under the panel of solar punk that i would definitely recommend that i definitely find um potent i think uh, one particular example that I really love um, is Walk Away by Corey Doctorow. Yep. Excellent, yep. excellent piece of fiction. I, I would love to reread it at some point um, because I really do find it fantastic. I also find a lot of uh, value in Ecotopia um, by Ernest Kallenbach, although it is uh, flawed in a lot of uh, different ways and doesn't quite align with my politics. A lot of the ideas presented in terms of ways we could potentially do things differently Uh, are things that I find interesting in that text. Um, That was written way before Punk. was even idea uh, conceived by anyone. It was written in 1970-something, I believe. There are, of course, a lot of excellent anthologies out there. Sun Vault is a staple, although I haven't read it personally. I've contributed to the introduction for an upcoming Punk anthology called Fighting for Future, which is edited by Phoebe Wagner. And although it is not quite the hopeful vision. I think the ad- idea of endurance dis- against all odds as a theme, which can be found in soul punk, is also present in Octavia Butler's Parable of the Soul. Um, I mean, that is a very gritty <laughs> text. Yeah, it The apocalyptic, and it's set in and fairly contemporary. But it, I believe it's the idea it presents is somewhat fitting um, in a sort of a broader sense of the genre. A lot of Ghibli works also, or Ghibli works also gets thrown under, uh, the solarpunk label. But the only one I think really fits is Princess Mononoke, in terms of its themes, in terms of its underlying message, in terms of the actual conflict present within the text. My whole thing with solopunk media is that I feel like a lot of people in an effort to expand the genre and to add more stuff to the list, people see like Cities with trees, uh, or advanced technology with trees. Even though the actual world is quite dystopian, no shade to TV tropes, but I did see them using Zootopia as an example of solar punk, which I no found odd. odd. <laughs> Absolutely um, not. I, I, at that point, I feel like you're, you're pulling a muscle trying to reach out that far.
0: You know, I made this video recently about Disney's Strange World and how there's some sort of solar punk adjacent elements, at least in the the ideology of the uh, of, of the film. And, you know, people leave their comments and normally I don't look. (laughs) That's experienced
1: YouTuber
0: uh, (laughs)
1: practices.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I have a whole long list of words that are blocked because I'm trying to weed out the reactionary, the worst, you know, people. I don't want to have them clogging up the place. And I just have to check just to make sure that like there's nothing really awful going on. But I did notice that lots of people would say, oh, I love solar punk. And then they would just list things that had nothing to do with solar punk whatsoever. They'd be like, yeah, The Legend of Zelda is a great solar punk series. And I'm like, "Um, (laughs) look, okay, uh, I think we've missed...
1: Pastels and trees does not make something.
0: Yeah, or like, um, everyone kept bringing up Black Panther. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's Afrofuturism for sure
1: but the only adjacent at least full the punk element is some aspects of its open planning the actual text itself is not even close
0: yeah yeah there's that scene where they kind of they're walking through wakanda and having a conversation about something probably something to do with hereditary monarchy and <laughs> which doesn't fit i mean it just doesn't fit
2: hereditary monarchy through combat <laughs> right yeah
0: yeah supported by the cia so not perfect uh, solar punk aesthetic there in terms of the message. But yeah, I mean, you know, you have this city and people are walking through it and then it is at least aesthetically kind of nice. And it's also uh, obviously very inspiring to see that you know set in in East Africa. But there's also the story that it's a part of, which diverges wildly from from what we're talking about. And so I think people are sort of, they're very hungry for anything yes. that could be-
1: That's what I was about to say. It's a very deep hunger for any kind of- solarpunk media this huge gap because for so long we've just been fed dystopia and cyberpunk and um, blade runner and mad max and etc etc all these apocalypse and disaster and fallout and pain and suffering and cybernetics and mega corporations and it's like you know a lot of people just want you know, a walkable neighborhood and maybe some <laughs> some nice uh, flora and fauna around them. All
0: right. You know, I I wanted to also bring up this this phenomenon, where even if people like the the aesthetic or they they are excited about solar punk in general, I have seen some people push back on it because they're sort of been trained to be skeptical of utopia or anything that sort of even appears to be a utopia. We've been trained to reject it outright because, you know, on Star Trek, whenever they land on the planet, and it seems like it's a great, wonderful paradise, it always turns out that actually there are slave children running the machines <laughs> underground, right? There's always yeah. something-
1: The ones who walk away from home, alas.
0: Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a, there's always some, you know, it's, it's always a veneer that hides something worse than than what we currently have in the real world right and yeah. so these sort of false utopias have been fed to us so often a lot of people have this sort of instinctual rejection oh no it's too good to be true it's got to be yeah there has to be some dark side you know like it's got to be secretly authoritarian or something right and, and so getting through that requires more work in this kind of genre and serious work in that genre but it also requires there to be more popular stuff that people can get over that initial like freak out, <laughs> like, oh, okay, there must be something going on here that is terrible.
1: It, it feels as though um, people think it's more mature to slap on like right. this sort of gritty yeah. dark side to everything, you know, like when we get in the villainous Strawberry Shortcake reboot, for example, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> there has to be some sort of dark side to every world. Like, it was all in an hallucination, and you know they, they see a lot of the, con- um, the fan theories about various Pixar properties. It tends to be this really uh, <laughs> nightmarish, um backstory behind it all.
0: There, there was an episode of this show, Star Trek: Strange New World, which is one of the new Star Trek re- reboots. There's an episode where they this exact thing happens. They come to a what appears to be a paradise, and it turns out, of course. But in order for it to be a paradise, through some science fiction nonsense, they have to sacrifice a child every year or every couple of years for the thing to operate or have power. And the or child, whatever. Is strawberry
2: shortcake. Right. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. there was easy. the cutest, sweetest child.
0: Yeah, and it's just so frustrating because you're like Hollywood writers; just they just can't stomach it unless there's some evil secret. Because I do think it's you know a healthy skepticism. Is important, right? Because that helps us interrogate something and and engage with it critically. But there's a difference between being cynical and being skeptical. Falling into cynicism and nihilism is a, a spiral of doom, and you got to be indeed you got to be careful about it.
2: But I, you know. to me, the idea of of that excites me. Newly learning about solar punk is if someone said, "Imagine a fascist totalitarian future," I can do that. If someone said, imagine a liberated anarchistic or, or anti-imperial future where people are free and safe and living on a sustainable earth, much harder much harder. And that falls on all of us to say like we can't imagine that, like that's not something we can visualize and this is the quote that gets attributed to a whole bunch of people um that andrew you you've, you talk about uh, frequently is that we can imagine the end of the earth or we can imagine a zombie apocalypse but we can't imagine the end of capitalism. But I think that that's the work of of culture producers, right? Yeah. Well, it's also the work of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in Hollywood and mm-hmm. making I don't know fiascos like Waterworld or whatever, the hell, or 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 you know other dystopian futures. Yeah, so those are easy to imagine because we've seen them hundreds and hundreds of times. Definitely. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I I feel like you know these sort of post-apocalyptic, cyberpunk, sort of corporate dystopias, ecological collapse, right? All of that stuff has been so ubiquitous. I mean, it is everywhere in popular media, from you know Fallout, like I said, video games, movies, to TV shows to Novels and books, comics especially, and so it's been. We've been so overloaded with that, and it's you know it has such high production value. A lot of it, right? Uh, So Blade Runner twenty forty nine is a beautiful movie. I mean, visually, it is gorgeous, right? I mean, the Mm -hmm. colors and the palette and the sets and the lighting. I mean, everything about it is like enticing and exciting. And and most movies that are you know big budget films or TV shows or or video games. That are set in these post-apocalyptic worlds, you know, they have this such a high production value. It, it's so inviting that it makes you, it makes a lot of people want to be there. It's this weird phenomenon where it's supposed to be the story, the narrative, is about failure, the failure of society, the collapse of society, right? And whether that's a corporate dystopia or or an, uh, an ecological wasteland, those are stories of human failure, right? They're supposed to be warnings, like we don't want this except that it's shot and uh, the visual the, the visuals are so beautiful and so enticing that that makes people yearn for that like almost desire the end of the world right and then you know accompanied with those stories of course are these fantasies of rugged individualism right where you can have your gun and your motorcycle and you can like yeah. fly through the desert and you know do whatever it's you- like you know, the
1: worst aspects of our world turned out to 11, but also you get to be a cool hero. So, you know, that
0: trade-off right, is right. somewhat appealing. <laughs> right. Society is completely gone, but,
2: you know, you get a cool motorcycle and a gun. And a so. cybernetic arm. I, I mean, come on, come on. Right. Yeah, a cybernetic arm. <laughs> I was going to say anatomy, a uh, uh, vibranium shield, but um, <laughs> right. because if you ask most people, like, w- if you could be Captain America... But you have to be Captain America in World War II. So World War II has to happen again. Wouldn't you do it? People would be like, wow, yeah, that's, that sounds pretty cool. I get to be the super superhero. Because in all of these movies, right, there's an either an individual or a group of individuals that are- We always
1: visualize ourselves as the heroes, not the NPCs.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, right. So so that's, the, and, and people believe that, right? They say, well, the way you change it is you individually. Because- they see themselves as like, okay, like I'm Captain America or I'm Wolverine or I'm Rambo, and I I can save it. And then I know people who like they're like 29, and they were like, oh, you know, I was involved in like that Black Liberation work, but you know, d- didn't do anything. I'm like, how long did you do the work? <laughs> and it, it, that really hurts me. And I think it's 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 all of our of our doing to try to have people understand that the idea that it's a much longer slower struggle
0: right you know what i find so interesting about solar punk is that it's it's hopeful it's optimistic but it's also grounded in communities right it's grounded in people and people's yeah. uh, ability to come together and change our reality it's all you know it's also literally you know rooted in The Earth, and (laughs) that usually means something slow, right? I mean, it's like growing things is a slow process. Yeah, when you have a garden, an orchard, whatever, it takes time. It takes nurturing, and I think that the aesthetics of solar punk often and
1: there are setbacks,
0: and there are setbacks, right? Because that's that's, speaking um,
1: from gardening experience,
0: (laughs) right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes things don't take root. Sometimes there's bad weather. Sometimes, right? There's all kinds of sometimes. There's those damn spider mites right? It's it's a process and it's not a fast process. I feel like there's a sort of sexy, seductive type of revolution that gets pushed in a lot of activist circles where it's all about confrontation, right? Action. And that's all very fast and very quick and very conflict oriented. And this is sort of the opposite of that. It sort of reinterprets revolution. Not, Not that that stuff isn't also necessary or part of struggle. But this is a, a, another part of struggle, which is it gets less attention. It isn't seen as as flashy and exciting because it takes time and it takes nurturing to build. And so I like that, at least in terms of the aesthetics of of, of solar punk work, um, it sort of reflects that, but it reflects it in a way that makes it enticing. Uh, yeah. It makes it feel like like you want to be there, right? Revolution, but it makes you feel good. It's less adrenaline and more relaxation. You know, while also accomplishing this radical. Even process. dare I say, it's a little bit of fun.
2: Right, right. <laughs> a little bit of fun. I always think, come in, come in, because the water is great. Right, it's it actually doing that work is is incredibly healthy. No matter what situation you're in, it is better for your brain to be doing that liberation justice work, environmental work people frequently ask me how they're like, isn't it really depressing to do this work all the time? And I always think, isn't it really depressing not to like <laughs> the not doing would be far more depressing to me.
1: I get that completely.
2: And I think that's one of the promises of solar punk, like showing people that.
1: Yeah.
0: There is a novella. Actually, it's not even a novella. I think it's just a short story. MK Jemison's emergency skin. Uh, and it is about a humanity, like basically Elon Musk <laughs> And, and and his friends went and colonized some moon somewhere. That society is horrifyingly dystopian, <laughs> but <laughs> but the uh, the story takes place entirely from the perspective of someone that they've sent back to Earth to check and see if it's still there, because you know Earth was dying, so all these you know all the the billionaires went away, and the it's it's about what this scout that they've sent back finds on earth. And it's not what they expected. Uh, What they find is instead a a thriving society (laughs) Um, that that is very much in line, I think, with a lot of what we've been talking about. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, again, it's a short story, but it is, I think, brilliant. And uh, I would highly recommend it if you can find a copy of it somewhere or download it. Sure. What's it called again? It's called Emergency Skin, N.K. Jemisin. Emergency Skin. It it isn't really like we we're like we we're saying you kind of struggle to to mention a mainstream movie or TV show or something that embodies all of these solar punk principles, right? You kind of get little glimpses here and there. Mm-hmm. I watched the recent uh, Matrix movie, the fourth one. You know, it's a post apocalyptic world. It's the the whole the sky is black. There's no sunlight. Like, it's terrible, right? But there's like a couple moments where the machines and the humans come together and they're trying to grow strawberries. And they have Keanu Reeves, like, eat a strawberry and be really excited about it. Welcome to the garden, Neo.
2: A strawberry? Using digital code from the Matrix, we retroconvert it into DNA sequences. And they grow here.
1: It's not easy augmenting the genome to photosynthesize biosky, but we're getting there. <laughs> Go ahead,
0: try it. So there are just sort these little tiny glimpses. That, that scene lasts for, like, one minute that is like more inspiring than most of what we get in popular culture yeah solarpunk is kind of like the idea of a genre that really wants to be but isn't quite you know hasn't quite taken off in terms of mainstream but it has taken off in terms of internet culture in terms of social media in terms of small artists and and writers who are making work i mean it's everywhere it just hasn't quite broken through and i think you know the 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 corporate structures are are hesitant to to take Not that they don't try sometimes to, to greenwash it, but it is still very, very influential, even though it, you can't go to the local cinema and see a solar punk movie in the theater, at least not yet.
1: And hopefully the little genre that could eventually would. And it,
0: it, it's already happening, you know, it's, it's, it's building up. I, I recently read two books by Becky Chambers, who's one of my favorite science fiction writers. She has two novellas, which are called The Monk and Robot Series. Uh, they were published, I think last year so very recent they are about a, a post capitalist society that functions and everybody lives in harmony with the environment and i sort of when i say that to people they go oh well that that would be boring but these these books are not boring and they go oh well there wouldn't be any conflict so that's boring and i'm like no i mean have you met a human being before <laughs> like <laughs> human beings are really good at conflict it doesn't always have to be you know, some sort of violent clash with the whole world at stake. Like there are conflicts, interpersonal conflicts, interneighborhood conflicts, like conflicts everywhere. And there are all kinds of ways that people deal with them. Uh, and there's struggle, right? Even even if we are beyond capitalism, there's still struggle to survive, to exist, to have have relationships, and to have community. Like all of those things are involve humans, <laughs> and because we're humans, it involves some measure of 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 conflict. Yeah. And so you know you see that in these books where you know this tea monk travels around to all the different communities and they essentially offer custom made blends of tea for that particular person's anxieties or problems or struggles and then they basically act like, as like a like a counselor like an informal counselor with tea mm. right and so they're traveling like that's their their vocation and they they set up their tea caravan and they put the pillows out and they make the teas and they talk to people about their problems and it's a community service and through those conversations you sort of see the struggles that they're going through right and then there's a whole another component where there's a robot that lives in the forest that isn't supposed to exist and they become friends and they sort of travel this this world it's it's a, it's a fantastic it's sort of it's quiet and it's um unassuming but it isn't a world without conflict and it isn't a world without drama and it isn't a, you know it's just that the stakes are lower mm. and it's fantastical in a lot of ways but it's comforting at the same time this is a major you know a very a best-selling author a big publishing company um, and it is marketed as solar punk i think that's one of the first times i've seen something that the you know i've seen the the anthologies before but but like a major some major works being put out and and, and promoted as solar punk and you know Becky Chambers' work, she has a whole other series called the, the Wayfarer series which is also excellent. And I actually think has a lot of solar punk elements although it's it happens in space and it's on these giant ships and so on. But it's all, you know, there's lots of sustainability practices and stuff. It's extremely popular and surprisingly so. Uh, because it's sort of the, it's sort of very human centric. And that's something that I really appreciate about solar punk as well is that it's not just focused on the technology. But right. a lot of science fiction is like, well, it's this technology is going to be great, and then, you know, even if it's sustainable, it's all about the technology. But solarpunk is all about human beings, you know. And I think that is lost in a
1: lot of people's uh, engagement with solarpunk, and I'm so glad that you put that into words. the The values and, and principles that have the potential to be explored in solarpunk, the human relationships, uh, the power dynamics, the relationships between humanity and nature. All of those things, uh, I think, are far more essential uh, to explore than just what magical technology can we come up with. When we talk about the shortcomings that I see uh, the genre potentially get into, right, because it is still a baby genre. And as a result, there's a lot of different directions it can go. I mean, we could talk about it as a movement or we could talk about it as a genre. And I have thoughts on both, right? As a genre, as you mentioned, there has to be uh, a willingness to engage with and to explore the forms of conflict that aren't, you know, these flashy boss battles, right? To their credit, soul-punk authors have been doing that. Right. There's also need, I believe, for the for the genre to develop and diversify beyond this sort of uh, uniform green aesthetic and to actually explore how it may be interpreted and how may it, it may evolve in different ecological and cultural contexts, right? Great. But my hottest take with regard to the genre that I think sets me <laughs> apart from a, a lot of the more tech obsessed types is that I really don't think solar punk is this far future, almost space opera-esque style genre. I lean more into that sort of low tech, dirt between your fingernails kind of approach to the genre, exploring those sort of bonds between the people and I think it needs to retain that sort of contemporary sense of this is a world that could be tomorrow because it feeds into the movement and it feeds into the, the need for hope in activism. And then when you get into the sort of shortcomings of the movement, you know, we talk about greenwashing and how it fall fall uh, prey to that. We could talk about, you know, techno-optimism and this idea that technology is going to solve any problems we have with our relationship with nature when uh, au contraire, you know, we actually need to You know, fall back a few steps and step back and actually earnestly evaluate our technologies. Um, there is this sense that you know technologies are like one hundred percent goods that we must accept and and support one hundred percent. That's not to say that I'm a rejecter of technology, but the industrial revolution happened kind of fast, right? (laughs) You know, uh, within the within a very short space of time, uh, considering the entirety of human existence. Uh, cars are still a relatively recent invention, and yet we've built our entire cities around them. And so, and then of course we're seeing AI accelerating at an almost uh, concerning rate. So I think that our engagement with solar punk as it relates to technology should be less, ooh, what magical technology could we do for this? And more, how are the people in this world, in this setting and today, uh, as we venture forth toward a potential solopunk sort of future, how are we going to engage with and adapt our existing technologies and rethink how we integrate them in our lives, in our societies, in our environments, et cetera. Right. And then, of course, the last concern that I think I had was related to this sort of soft climate change denial, this idea, that, again, that technology will solve the issue, but there's a need that I think solar punk can help with, and that is to engage with, okay, well, how do we build for the best while preparing for the worst?
0: Yeah, it's a very concise way of, of, of breaking it down. Any sort of artistic movement, its boundaries are porous, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, it's being pushed and pulled in different directions. And, and to some extent that's good because it, it allows for people to to mold it and shape it in better ways. Uh, but you know, there is also, like you're saying, there is the danger that that corporations come and they say, "Oh, this is pretty. Uh, we want to associate our brand with yep. a good future." <laughs> you know, we, we, I'm sure that the people who have are, are hearing this, if they've seen my video on on Disney's Strange World, I use a lot of clips from this commercial uh, called Dear Alice, which is a a yogurt commercial. <laughs> I mean, it's a corporate product.
2: Our job is to plant seeds so our grandkids get to enjoy the fruit.
0: It's sort of a Studio Ghibli kind of vision of the, of the, of the future, beautifully animated, and they're trying to associate themselves with this vision of, of, of a better future. Now, I didn't use clips from the the commercial itself. I used clips from the decommodified version. Someone on YouTube had yeah. taken it, like it, removed all of the branding, and so it, you know, it, it sort of gives you all the aesthetic uh, of, of this uh, futuristic permaculture farm. But without the corporate branding, and so I you know I use clips for that. But you know, it 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 is an interesting situation where we have a, a corporation which is trying to do one thing, and we and we I think we all understand what that thing is. You know, they're trying to uh, associate themselves with something uh, futuristic and positive, even though they are a corporate structure. And so I said in in my video that I do believe it's possible for us to engage with that critically and say, okay, well I like. This vision and the inspiration that that can give us, but we can also be critical of the corporate structure that's behind it, and we can understand there's no place for those corporations. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know when you are engaging with any sort of piece of corporate media, which is impossible to avoid, and corporate media is the way that people often relate to each other and relate to the world, and so uh, for us as people who are trying to change that world, uh, I think it becomes important for us to to engage with with corporate culture in a in a nuanced way. We can be critical of it. We can point out, you know, th- those hierarchical structures cannot exist in the future. But occasionally, there are inspirational visions that kind of slip through the cracks. <laughs> that, that to me doesn't feel like a contradiction. It feels like critical engagement.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, my position on that infamous commercial has evolved since I first used it in my work. I mean, I still find the animation studio behind it to be very talented, shout out to them. Um, and the commercial aesthetic has really resonated with a lot of people and got some of them into solar punk. So that's definitely inspirational. But then there are discussions to be had about the content within the commercial beyond just, you know, it's <laughs> advertising yoga. Right. For example, does there need to be a flying school bus? Um, <laughs> in this Absolutely, so far yes. <laughs> Pro- probably not, no. Um, and I mean, <laughs> the questions like, are, are some of the technological applications visualizing the piece practical or necessary? Is the form of agriculture present entirely compatible with the principles of permaculture? And then, while it's a world presented in the ad that to use technology and nature coexist in harmony together, it's also questioning the premise. Some of those technologies, considering the current mode of production and The wastes that it produces being externalized uh, negatively impact people outside of the communities that benefit most from those technologies Mm. i mean maybe this will circumvents this issue but it can just as easily lull us into thinking or rather into not even thinking about those sorts of issues in technologies production and development for those who don't know what i'm referencing most of our modern technologies rely on the mining of rare earth minerals which are primarily found in uh, Africa and the people who have to mine those minerals are uh, in slavery conditions. Essentially, yeah. I see that. I don't think there's anything wrong with like in the ad. You know, with it's cute aesthetic and it's it's fine to go off the warm fuzzy vibes. Uh-huh. I think it's important to maintain one's hesitance toward these corporate products. Uh, it's almost insidiously powerful. Uh, what could be hidden uh, in the messaging behind some of these pieces? And I think that's why I ended up developing. I was supposed to do one last year. and I didn't end up doing one last year. I did one in 2021 and I'm doing one this year. And that is like a collaborative solo punk art project to sort of update the aesthetics and the visuals of punk. Um When I did it in 2021, my channel's a lot smaller and since then it's gotten a bit larger. So I have quite a, a group of people doing it now. It's not an art competition for a reason, but I'm using the submission guidelines to sort of guide the visuals that we see shaping solar punk because up to now a lot of the visuals are still huge skyscrapers with trees on top and singapore and singapore and <laughs> <laughs> you know it's not quite um what the principles of solar punk would uh, actually manifest as particularly singapore um for what should be obvious reasons
2: <laughs> it is solar punk doesn't have the aesthetic of Executing you if you have marijuana? No, that's not. <laughs> that's not part of the aesthetic. <laughs> okay. When you go in the country, you literally fill out a form. It says, "We will execute you for drug crimes." It, <laughs> it actually says that on the on the visa. That's form.
1: crazy. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, not, one, not w- one of the
2: things that I wanted to jump back to a little bit, and apologies, is is this idea, John? You were talking about some of the, the recent readings uh, you were doing in the novellas about conflict, and I see this in when people are organizing they encounter conflict, but good and reasonable political conflict, disagreements about what should happen, disagreement about tactics and even strategies. And then they completely lose their shit. because <laughs> They say, well, you know, it's not dark side coming to kill us all. Why am I fighting with you? And you're like, because it's life. That is a normal thing to have a grounded Political discussion about the way we approach things, about what is the most important to do, what things are less important to do, what to expend resources on, how much risk to take, and people can't. I've, literally, I literally, I've come up with a saying. I say, well, if you're only spending fifty percent of your time on internal conflict, you're probably doing pretty good. And everyone always laughs when I say that because they were like, well, we're spending like seventy percent. And and I I tell people like you don't want to have that, but it is very normal to have it. And I think because of all of the media we consume right you watch game of thrones and you're like well if there's not 4000 ravaging hordes trying to kill your hordes of people then it's not a real problem and it shouldn't exist right so so really media makes you know fiction makes us ill equipped to deal with regular problems and then and i i also think this is why people they want to have some very evil you know, uh, uh, enemy corporation, nation state to deal with, to be like, that's the enemy and we can fight them. But we should never have any disagreement in our camp. And people are very ill-equipped to um, to deal with that. So some of the things you were saying, if if people get more experience in, this is normal. It is normal to have healthy conflict with people who are in your whatever, who who believe most of the same things you believe. I think people get shocked when they say, You don't agree with a hundred percent of the things I believe politically. How could we possibly work together?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a concept I talk about in, um, in my video leftist disunity. And it's something that I've had to consistently navigate. You know, I think what people need to recognize as well is that without healthy conflict, I don't think your activism is going to be as effective because I believe that it takes a level of vulnerability and emotional investment and with Vulnerability, emotional investment comes conflict, comes also depth in those relationships. And that depth, I think, is what creates the effective bonds that are necessary for effective activism.
0: Yeah. You can often come to some better or different understanding, some better or different solution that you wouldn't have found otherwise if you didn't have to navigate, you know, low stakes conflict with other people who were in your in your group. I mean that that process of compromise and counterproposal and proposal can get us to better solutions so this push and pull in terms of decision making in terms of projects i think is is it can be very healthy but we don't learn it in school <laughs> we don't learn it at work you know we don't learn it from the movies and game of thrones certainly mm. so most of our experience with conflict in our personal and our and our professional lives happens within a top down hierarchy where Conflict is is punished, right? You know, and 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 whoever has the higher position essentially makes the decision, right? They might get input, but they make the decision. So it's a it's a very I think a lot of people have a sort of a visceral uh, negative reaction to the idea of conflict because if it happens in the in spaces that aren't democratic or horizontal, it can be very very unpleasant, and you can just get you know steamrolled when when solar punk or other forms of liberatory fiction can present low-stakes conflict that is productive, that is constructive, yeah, I think the more that can happen, the better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, my engagement with sulapunk and my channel is principally political. And to be clear, sulapunk is not unified in its politics, but sulapunk principles do generally lean in a very particular political direction. Um, I mean I don't believe that Sodapunk can stand alone. It has to be connected with anti-capitalist movements and consensus-based movements and abolitionist movements and landback movements and DIY and permaculture movements and transition towns and decolonial struggles and workers struggles and all these other projects for the liberation of all. Um, otherwise Sipunk is just going to be another like coat of paint that uh, corporations can co-opt to quote unquote green
0: capitalism. That's actually something important, right? That solar punk is not just about surviving or thriving. It, there's political elements to it as well. It's, there are principles of sort of horizontal, um, decentralized organizing that are essential, I think, to the, to the genre.
1: I think, and I alluded to it earlier, what makes solar punk punk is its opposition to the systems of domination that exploit us now. And it's pursuit of a transformation of work, community, and society as a whole. It stands against all of what we have been told about what possibilities there are. I mean, we are told that there's no alternative to the world that we have today and the systems that surround us. And so it's punk. So the punk is punk in the sense of hope in a world that seeks to deny it. Mm. You know, the idea that uh, in politics these days that imagination has no place in a pragmatic and no-nonsense world. And that's just false. You know, we have a lot of flexibility. We're capable of a lot of different social arrangements. Um, and if everyone limited themselves to the confines of what is, we wouldn't be where we are today. Anarchism has had a lot of influence in the solo punk movement. Um, and so a lot of the principles and values that you find in anarchism you'll also find in solo punk. Things like social justice and mutual aid and direct action and prefiguration. Uh, Prefiguration being the practice of establishing the relationships and systems and institutions of a desired future uh, in the here and now. Solarpunk of course retains that ethos of DIY, of doing it ourselves, of taking our lives back into our own hands. It touches on food autonomy, permaculture being one of the primary ways in which people engage with solarpunk as a lifestyle. And of course on the more radical side of things, solarpunk is very clearly degrowth, at, at least in from my perspective, because it seeks to transform society to ensure environmental justice and a good life for all within planetary boundaries, which are pretty much the exact goals of degrowth as well. Solarpunk uh, is also, it also asks us to fundamentally reimagine our relationship with labor and leisure. So you see a lot of intersections and overlaps between various movements and ideas that Solarpunk flirts with and is in conversation with and intersects with. When I spoke of solarpunk Punk, um, throughout this episode, I spoke with these ideas uh, forming the foundation of my understanding of the concept, recognizing, of course, it's not the only way of understanding it, but it is the understanding of it that I advocate for.
0: Yeah, I mean, a, a few of the things that you, that you said, uh, you know, throughout our conversation have really stood out to me, and I wanna, just wanted to highlight a couple of them. Sure. You, know, you, talked, you talked about the importance of... At least a version of solar punk that is low tech, in that you know it doesn't necessarily have to be the flying school buses and the giant skysc- skyscrapers. That as part of grounding it in reality, being able to imagine how we can implement these things—permaculture systems, solar grids, power networks—but doing it locally uh, with what we have now. Right, sort of like we're, we're taking the the green tech that we currently have and we're sort of fusing it with the worlds that we actually live in right now. Yeah. And it struck me that that's really important because we don't want to have a situation where we feel like we have to wait for the flying school bus before we can take off and get to the to the good, better world. You know, along with that, I was I was reminded that one of the things that I like about at least the 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 versions of the solar punk stories that I'm drawn to are very much rooted in African and indigenous traditions around uh, agriculture farming tech that maybe we don't need to invent maybe we just need to relearn <laughs> uh, that because it did exist and then you know European colonization destroyed it uh, and sometimes destroyed the knowledge too or at least push it to the margins and there's a lot to be to sort of relearn and re-implemented
2: Nick Estes the uh, Lakota, professor activist organizer water protector um the title of his book is our history is the future um and he's talking about the history of indigenous people in the united states and and the lakota people and i think that the title has some of that solar punkness in it right that there are things that existed in the past that were in to some sense in harmony with nature and humanity that existed you should think of those things and that is a future that we can build Absolutely.
0: Was recently reading some stuff from Lila June, who's a Native American activist, and she talks a lot about what was here in in terms of the United States before the waves of colonization. Because there's this idea that it was a, a tabula rosa, right? It was just completely wild. It was a it was a wilderness to be tamed, and that's just not true. It, the whole country or the whole continent, really, was. Managed, there were roads, there were structures, some of them massive. There were cities, there were millions of people, and I think that gets lost in our modern retellings of of of, of that time. Along with that, all of those techniques for managing land and resources can still be and are still extremely important, and um, can be implemented. We know on a large, almost you know continent wide scale because it was done before, um, and certainly we have. New technology that we can add to that as well. But there is a lot rooted in solar punk that draws from past traditions, indigenous traditions. That, um, And I think that that is a core part of what makes it interesting and relevant as a genre. Right.
2: I was just going to say, I read very recently, maybe at the, as a precursor to this this book, Capitalist Realism, mm. on your suggestion, I think, Andrew, on and one of your videos, on multiple videos, it made me think many people who work on, let's say, black liberation in the United States, indigenous liberation, people who work doing anti-capitalist work against war and imperialism, they say, oh yeah, well, the police are bad, but what are you going to do? It's it's always going to be like that. Or they say, you know, surveillance is is terrible, but... It's everywhere. There's nothing we can do about it. So I just have to you know, deal with the fact that there's a camera on the pole outside of my house. Amazon has a ring doorbell on everyone's uh, front door. And there's this negativity involved in a lot of leftist thought that it's it's just too late, yeah. right? And if you're really leftist, you have to accept how bad that is.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is something that, you know, back in, in the early 2000s, when I first started doing organizing against the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, there became sort of this cynical orthodoxy among among a lot of leftists, almost like they would try to one up each other in terms of being more cynical, right? And that the more cynical you could be about the world that we live in, right, the, the more you proved your
2: cred, which I found really counterproductive. I find myself arguing with people and and being accused of being centrist because I, I because I say there is hope, mm, right? Yeah. And when I started hearing you talk about about solar punk, I was like. Okay, I'm not losing my mind. Well, maybe I am.
1: You haven't bought into this uh, apocalypse theology, and that frustrates yeah, people. Yeah, I,
2: I I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you this terrible question. I apologize for the question in advance. But how do how do I deal with someone? Say, because I get pushed into this place where I sound like I'm saying, "Well, it's not that bad," which mm. really what I'm saying is, historically, we've done something about this. Right now, we can do something about this. In the future, we can and we will do something about it.
1: Yeah. No matter what position we find ourselves in, uh, what situation develops materially in the future, there will always be something that we can do. Even if we reached a point where jackboots are marching down the street, there are always ways that we can eke out survival, always ways that we could keep up hope in some form and some capacity. Some people's vision of solar encapsulates this idea that with some... Near godly technology, we're able to just magically avert climate catastrophe entirely. I just automatically erase all of the uh damage that was caused in the past couple hundred years. A little magical thinking. That's there. that's not <laughs> that's not my perspective. Um well, power to them, but that's not my perspective. My perspective has been that this is a situation. In a lot of ways it is gonna get a bit worse. But that doesn't mean that we just roll over. That doesn't mean there aren't things that we can still do to mitigate it, to make a, a life worth living, to create the good life in the here and now and for the future. Uh, it's not a flashy form of, of, of revolution or activism, uh, where, you know, we just storm the Bastille and off with the heads and all that drama. But it is, my vision of solarpunk is really a, a means of not just surviving, but also thriving for ourselves, our communities, surrounding environment right
2: yeah one of the things that i I say when when confronted with that nihilistic pessimism I'll, i'll call it is i say we whittle right it's this slow process of organizing with people getting together and making it a little bit less bad or trying to eke out a little bit better situation material conditions for us and you know all of our people but that is akin to whittling. It is a slow, yeah. not, there's never a, a moment where you are like, whoa, that was a giant leap forward. Um, you can hope for those, but rare.
1: Yeah, they are, they are rare. They are posi- um, moments of, you know, rupture and moments of insurrection and whatnot, but those are rare compared to the slow burn that is the work in between those moments. And th- that's the work that needs to be done. I think some people who get into activism, they get caught up in the throes of the passion, and what's lost is the small contributions that are very much necessary to to make a difference. Perhaps no one person can change the whole world, but each person is able to contribute to change in their communities. Each of those communities can contribute to change uh, further and further up the chain, and that can make uh, a real
0: difference. This has been a fantastic conversation. I want to thank Andrew for joining us, taking his time out of his day to to enlighten us about what Solarpunk is and maybe what it isn't as well. Thank you, uh, Andrew, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now we're gonna have to leave the conversation there, but I'll leave a whole bunch of links to everything we've discussed, including Andrew's YouTube channel below this episode. And I'll also make sure to post those links over on the Pop Culture Detective website. Please remember that all Pop Culture Detective projects are 100% funded by listeners and viewers like you. So if you enjoy these kind of in-depth conversations about media and society, please consider going over to Patreon to support our work. Just go to patreon.com slash popdetective. You can keep up to date with all of our projects on Instagram or TikTok, at popdetective, and find all of our long-form video essays on the Pop Culture Detective YouTube channel. We'll be back again with another audiophile investigation, but until then, please remember to follow and subscribe wherever you happen to get your podcasts.